that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have life eternal. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already. But they have not believed the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and the people have loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. For all who do evil hate the light, and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to so that they may clearly see that their deeds have been done in God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I believe it's important this morning to be mindful that we entered this text in John smack dab in the middle of an ongoing conversation. Jesus is speaking to a man named Conversation, Nicodemus shows up in the middle of the night so that no one in his circles saw him there. And he's quick to tell Jesus that and I, I'm certain that you are from God. Your teachings and the things that we've seen you do make that certain for me. Yet, what Nicodemus could not understand, perhaps, were Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, to be the one who would come and redeem. He also perhaps could not believe those for whom Jesus would welcome him into the circle of those redeemed and into the kingdom. And David Davis could have no reason otherwise to think that he that he was a, a wonderful, good man, a faithful person. He had certainly lived his life to be part of God's kingdom. Perhaps he was also certain about those who may not, how they have treated others in the world. Now he's being told by Jesus that unless you believe I've come to redeem the lost, redeem those that perhaps you have caught up along in the kingdom, you're in danger of excluding yourself. That's his message. And his message to Nicodemus prior to what we've heard today was that you need to be reborn. And Nicodemus was confused by that. That was a strange thing to say. He hadn't heard that. But he wasn't speaking literally. He wasn't being a physical rebirth. Jesus wanted him to have spiritual rebirth. In other words, Nicodemus needed to understand God differently. He needed to unlearn some things that he had been taught and over these years that, that had brought him certainty. And you and I have had those encounters, many encounters in life, that have challenged our certainties about faith and about God and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And perhaps you've come to a time of harm or, or difficulty, this idea of protecting God's challenge for us. Many, many things happen in life that challenge our certainties. They're transformational, they're necessary, they're good, and they're difficult, all in the same. And I want to say that we need 
uncertainties. We need to know that some things are certain and they don't change in life. That's the root of this faith. That's the root of this life. But at the same time, we have to be careful not to place ourselves in our own bunkers of certainty. I want to know that food plus two is still more. I want to know that there are certain things about faith, about God, about following Christ, and being in the church that do not change. Love and grace and mercy and passion. These are certain. Yes. There's always more to learn. There's always more to comprehend about God. And about how God enters into our life as disciples, as followers, as human beings. So often, this understanding or the, the mystery of it revolves around who is or who is not part of the kingdom, right? John 3.16 was written with such a question. This whole passage. Now, growing up, we were watching a football game. The kicker was picking the that's your point, but did you see in the end zone? Yep, signed with John 3 16, love in the air. <laughs> Perhaps one of the most known, maybe one of the most beloved passages in the entire Christian experience. Very familiar. But the directions for which we can take it is meaning that can be far ranging. Then actually, what it means about so love in the world. And there seems to be, and it always has been, Two basic extremes of how we understand passages like this, how we understand salvation that we often hear. As I share these two spectrums, there's far more complications. There, there's far more to this than my simple explanation here, but I think, and I hope it gives us a good idea. But on one side, there's this idea that we human beings are we're incapable of love. That on our own, our sinfulness, the fact that we can be corrupted has made it impossible for us to overcome. And so, enter Christ. We have Christ who came as the atonement for us. He made that one again. Reconciling us to God and one another. Something that we have no way to do on our own power. Yet, when we look at the world, it seems obvious that not all people are faithful. Not all people are loving it. Not all folks are remotely interested in God's grace. What do we do in that? Well, sometimes we can be left to believe that this atonement is for an elect few, a chosen few. Those who openly accept our disbelief live out a life that reflects God's love and mercy. That's how we can know. As a side note, if you're familiar with the Protestant work ethic, it has its root right here. Idea that success and well being is an indication of God's favor and God's work in your life. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, the idea that the love of God is extended to everyone, held back from no one, it blankets humanity, and we, on our own, get to choose whether we accept this grace or not. It's by our faith that this grace enters our life. Not know who, so we need not worry about such things. And we can be left to wonder in between these two extremes if salvation comes by grace alone, or is faith even necessary? Should 
we say that faith is a product of our grace, of God's grace? The salvation, if it comes by the faith we muster, then do we activate this faith? Asking one person their point, and then the quote from one else, that's the question Is my salvation dependent upon the steadfastness of my devil? Will I be embraced by God? Whether or not I am faithful. And that is a very simplified telling of the whole church. But the ecumenical church, the church universe, will exist along this way. And many times it's called our approach to understanding verses like today and how we grasp salvation. Now, during the pandemic, my family, as we've taken the baby, Still creates a wide range of different things. You take eggs, flour, water, sugar, butter, salt. Add that to any other kind of recipe or, or other ingredient that you can think of. Cook it over various times, cook it in various ways, and cook it in various temperatures. And then with that short list, you can make flatbread, sourdough, sweet breads, cakes, muffins, pretzels, bacon. Amazing. have done a little bit of this ourselves in the basics of our faith. Grace, love, and generosity, and sacraments, mercy, and salvation, redemption, confession, repentance, those are the basics across the spectrum. Yet, in this tradition or that tradition, perhaps we give more meaning to some of these than others, and what we have in the end, well, we see the liberal, conservative, faithful, righteous, just or unjust and The cause of this, the expression of the Christian faith, it's almost like you have this amazing version of faith that's been cooked up in a world. But who knew that such a, a simple, universal claim that we make that if we believe in Christ, that we shall not perish but have such a broad, sometimes complicated, even divisive reality. I will offer that when we find ourselves using such a passage today as a litmus test for who belongs, who attends, who is out, that perhaps we've chosen some idea of certainty over faith and belief. In spite of Jesus' clear message, the eternal destiny of another person really is of our business. We often find ourselves right there. We often find ourselves in conversations of judgment and condemnation of right and wrong, saved and otherwise. This may be a part. But we want to be certain that we tie ourselves to the right spiritual wagon, right? Maybe even Paul, we're worried for those in our lives who fear me not. Offer us to be cautious. Remember where our calling is at such times. St. Paul reminds us that we are part of the priesthood of all believers. Those very much like us, and those maybe not so much like us. Our baptism reminds us that we are in a covenant with. 
sure we have our internal estimation laid out perfectly. And in this proper context, I believe John 3, John 3, 16, much deeper truth here. In the season of Lent, in this passage, John reminds us that the main thing here is to understand Jesus' death and sacrifice. And to set aside ideas that we can save our own souls choosing the right faith, the right church, or the right going the plan. This can, if we follow that path, go to be like picking up our own salvation. When we do that, we kind of stand in our own way. But I want to offer that perhaps the only thing we can be certain we find in John 3, 16, and we can say with all the church, say that Christ came to receive the state by of our mistakes, that we may be raised from death to life with him. Yes, there's anything we can serve, but we cannot always be certain. We want to be certain about ethical, moral, faithful choices, but we find some context or circumstances our experiences, well, faithful uncertainty. Sometimes we're only left to embrace the mystery that is God. And fully realizing that we will never fully grasp how God is working on you. Many years ago, I read a book called Salvation on the Sand Mountain. And I return to this book every three years on this particular Sunday because it's written by a man named Dennis Covington interested and intrigued by churches that had to say some part of the faith tradition. And so he found his way into one of those communities in Alabama. He entered as a skeptic, being from one of those mainline denominations, on the other end of the spectrum, you might say. But eventually he was drawn out. became a full part of that community and that tradition. Then the end he left it behind after some troubling and stories to read. But even so, the reason I bring this book up is because when you read this story, it reflects that he was sometimes amazed, sometimes called to be strange, spiritual, some dangerous experiences. He still had this authentic experience of God he saw both faith and fault. And he could not deny that the hand of God had somehow been a part of that experience. He could neither condone or condemn these folks that he had simply come to love. That was it. I just love. And I have a feeling that it is an awesome true for every church, right? Wherever we may be on that spectrum. One of his state cabinet friends says something to him towards the end of the book about always. He said, I've been hurt before many times, wrote Dennis. But let me tell you, the Bible of the serpent is nothing compared to the Bible of the man and the heart. Reflecting on his experiences and the love that remains for him in this in these people. He wrote about the mysteries that it is. Even there on the fringes of what it meant to be a 
Thank you. 